0: Well, experts tell us that communication is not what I say, it's what you hear. And uh, nothing could be more true than it was for this husband and wife. The husband sat on the bed one day, and he was watching his wife get dressed, and she was standing in front of the mirror, and she was, you know, going back and forth in front of the mirror, and it was almost her birthday, so he said to her, hey, honey, what would you like for your birthday? Well, she looked at herself in the mirror there, and she said, I'd like to be six again. Well, on her birthday, Her husband got up really early, and he made her a big gigantic bowl of Lucky Charms. And then he decided he was gonna kidnap her. So he kidnapped her and he took her off to Magic Mountain. And he took her on every ride in the park. They went on Twisted Colossus, X2, Batman, Scream, Riddler's Revenge, everything they could do. And uh, five hours later, they staggered out of the park. Her head was reeling, her stomach was churning, and he said, let's stop by McDonald's. I'm gonna get you a Happy Meal. So we got her a happy meal with a large fry and a chocolate shake and and then he said, let's go to the movies. And he took her to the movies and he got her popcorn and he got her soda and he got her favorite candy out of the $5 bin that's sitting there. She got to pick that day. Quite an adventure. When they got home that night. She laid down on the bed, just utterly exhausted. I mean, collapsed, basically. And her husband laid down next to her, and he smiled sweetly at her. And he gave her a big grin, and he said, well, honey, what does it feel like to be six again? And she rolled her eyes and gave him a smug little smile, and she said, I meant my dress size, dear. (laughs) Right? Communication is not what I say, it's what you hear. Well. It's our inability to give and receive information properly that gets us into trouble oftentimes. And uh, in our story today, the nation of Israel is going to be mired in a doozy of a misunderstanding. In this very bizarre story, as I told her yesterday, thank you very much, Stephanie Schwartz. I guess somebody had to do it. But in this bizarre story in 2 Samuel 10, we're going to find that there is a massive misunderstanding going on. And it's going to help us learn how to deal with our own relational challenges that we have. Because we want to learn not only how to get out of those misunderstandings as quickly as possible, but we also want to find out how to avoid stepping into them in the first place. And today's going to help us with both those things, hopefully. If you're not in 2 Samuel 10 yet, please get there. This is the place you're going to need to be all day long for me. No cross references that you have to turn to. Verse 1 says After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan their lord, Do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. Wow, talk about a misunderstanding. This was one of gargantuan proportions. We're gonna write down point number one and then we're gonna figure out all how this works out. Point number one for today is we need to expect misunderstandings. Expect misunderstandings. Misunderstandings happen almost every day, to every person on the planet, in every culture, throughout all of time. Because people think one thing when it isn't really the case, when something else is really going on. And that happens all the time. Most of the time, they're innocent mistakes. Occasionally, they're intentional and serious decisions to, to fall into them. Well, first verse says here that the kings of the Ammonites died. Well, it was at this point in Israel's history that they're not on very good terms with the Ammonites. See, back in 1 Samuel 11, the Ammonites came to an Israelite city to the men of Jabesh Gilead. And they said, we we, we wanna take you over. We want you to be our servants. And they were like, no, no, that's not a good idea. And they said, no, we're gonna gouge out your eye and you're gonna have to become our servants. Well, Jabesh Gilead asked for a week. Can you give us a week? to see if anybody in our nation will come and rescue us. And King Saul, in his very first um, act as king, gathered an army together and went and rescued Jabesh Gilead from this threat, from the Ammonites, the people we're talking about today. So you see, Saul and Israel aren't on really great terms with the Ammonites because they went in and defeated them when they had placed this threat against Jabesh Gilead. Well, since that time though, David has been out, and uh, he has actually struck up a friendship with the king of the Ammonites, King Nahash. And he forged a peace agreement with him. We assume that this all happened while David was out um, running for his life from Saul. Especially because David knew that at some point, not only was he a fugitive and out on his own, and he needed all the friends he could get, but he also knew that someday God was going to put him on the throne, and he was going to need these good international relations So he befriended King Nahash. Well, here David is trying to return Nahash's kindness, and he sends a group of representatives over to his kingdom to uh, send his condolences to his friend, actually, to his friend's son. These very important representatives of King David, who, by the way, were not house slaves. They were important people in the kingdom. They went there to offer this son a hand of friendship. David's heartfelt condolences and even a, probably a reminder that he would continue on in these peaceful relations with them. Well, it was logical. It was even what we might expect. When a head of state dies, this is the kind of thing you did. You sent important people over to talk. And then add to that, this was even more understandable because we find out that David was his friend. So, this makes perfect sense to us. In fact, um, we would expect nothing less from David after we heard about what he did with Mephi- Mephibosheth last week, right? In verse 2, in fact, it says um, that he dealt loyally with Hanan. Those words, that dealing loyally, they're the same words that were used last week for that loving kindness, that Hesed love that Stacy talked to us about. It's the same ter- term here. He dealt loyally with me. He had a faithful love, and so David now shows this faithful love to his friend's kid. But what is not normal about this whole situation is how Hanan responds to it, okay? Hanan is Nahash's son. He's the new king. Surely he knew of the relationship that David had with his father. Surely he knew of the peace agreement that they had forged. And a truly knuckleheaded move, he listens to bad counsel, and he makes a bad decision because of it. His counselors tell him that, basically, David doesn't really care about you. He's only taking advantage of you. He's spying out the land, which I think is actually pretty funny because David is a smart guy. He is literally the best military mind on the planet at that moment in time. Do you think that he couldn't figure out what was happening in the nation without sending this ploy? Of course not. David had all kinds of confidential informants on his payroll, in fact, in this very passage alone, in the chapter that we read, it says three different times David knew, David heard. He was totally aware of what was going on. Three different times it mentions it here. He did not need to have this, you know, kind of, I don't know, just, it just wasn't a very good plan to spy out even. So he, he didn't need this. This was just an excuse. He wasn't trying to spy on them. And in a situation that would play itself out again 50 or 60 years later, this time it would be David's grandson, Rehoboam, who would fall to the same thing that Hanan's doing, and that is he would listen to the wrong counsel and make a stupid decision because of it. That's what happens here. Hanan listens to this guy, and he makes a bad decision, these guys, and he makes a bad decision even worse because he doesn't just snub David's men. No, he goes and he pokes his finger in their eye. That's what he does with this event. And it seems like a perfect time to talk about a sidebar, our first sidebar of the day, because you and I need to surround ourselves with people, with women who are good influence on us, who give us good and godly and wise counsel. You know that verse that we always throw at our kids and our teenagers, bad company corrupts good morals? You know what? It applies to you too. And it applies to me. Bad company corrupts us as well. There is a difference between wisdom that comes from above and wisdom that comes from below, back in James 3. So we need to start surrounding ourselves with the right people who will give us the right kinds of information to help us make the right decisions. We need some people to help us make God-honoring decisions. And those people should be people who know and love God's Word. Those are the kinds of counselors that we should have around us, people who know and love God's Word, people you respect, But I usually tell people to not just go to people you respect, but people you're scared of. Because those people are the people that are going to tell you the things you don't want to hear. They're not just going to go, oh, that's so nice. I think you should do that. No, they're going to say, this is wrong. Why are you doing this? They're going to be gutsy enough to say even the thing that you might not like so much. Those are the kinds of counselors you need to have around you. Proverbs 20 verse 18 tells us that plans are established by counsel and by wise guidance, we wage war. So we need to gather people around us who listen and obey to God's word. Those are the kinds of people that should be talking in our ears. Well, we can see right away that Hanan's guys are not those guys. They're not the right guys with the right kind of information. They gave him bad advice, and quite frankly, he doesn't think through the bad advice either. I mean, he gets the bad advice, and he doesn't even seem to think about it. I mean, if he had thought for even an hour about the ramifications of doing such a stupid thing, I hope he would have stopped himself. But alas, he does not take time to sleep on the decision. He just acts foolishly. And uh, it's a problem. He makes it even worse when he does the whole beard robe thing because he's not just offending them, now he's actually, and he's well-meaning comforters, he's actually humiliating them on purpose. I mean, this isn't a mistake, this is on purpose. He does the whole shaving off the beard thing, ex- half the beard, mind you, exposing their nakedness and running them out of town. So what's up with the robe and the beard situation? Well, beards prove they're manly manless. Manly madness. And, you know, today is a day where beards are manly. They've made a resurgence. And so we might even understand it a little bit more, you know, all those manly men with their beards. And so not having one was kind of a problem, first of all. Next, it was something they were actually commanded to have and, and, and you know, keep in just the right way by the law, cut them in just the right way. But then add to that, when you wanted to shame someone, you would shave their beard. Because it would happen when... Um, People were captured. They would shave their beard as a sign of submission that they're now under their control, You know, because they could pin them down and shave them. So they're literally under their control. Add to that, they don't even just shave off the whole thing. They shave off half of it. Now, we don't really understand the significance of the half. Some people say it's because you know they were trying to show how insincere their um, grief was that they were trying to express to them. Some say it was just to embarrass them further, We don't really know. But, you know, the double whammy was, you know, cutting off their robes and exposing their nakedness. I mean, none of us would want that. Not in any culture, right? And uh, it was a shameful practice that was actually um, something that they did in war. Conquering nations when they took over other nations would take prisoners of war, right? People that had been captured. And this is what they would do to them. They would cut off their clothes so that there was you know, the exposing of their nakedness. And uh, what did that do? Well, it took all the fight out of the people. And that's what you wanted with prisoners of war. You didn't want them to have an uprising. You wanted them to be humiliated and hopeless. And that's what this did. And in a conservative culture like Israel, it was the ultimate disgrace to have this happen. Well, when David heard of it, he sent out, and he went, and he met up with them, and he said, hey, stay in Jericho. Jericho was the, you know, um, city that was the Jewish city that was closest to Jerusalem. It was like you were just finally getting there. And so he said, stop here. Of course, he could have, you know, remedied the situation with clothes immediately, but the beard thing was going to take more time. And he, he didn't want them to have to walk into Jerusalem shamed in that way. So he said, hey, hang out here for a little while until your beards grow in. And even that shows us the Hesed, faithful, loving, kindness of King David for his men. Well, hopefully no one in this room has experienced the kind of cruel, intentionally cruel, situation that the Ammonites did to them. I mean, there may be a few of you and i that makes me really sad and I'm sorry about that. but. Most of us here don't have that situation. It's not happening like this. But everybody here knows that um, people assume things about us that just aren't true sometimes. And that it it gets even worse if they use that against us or if they share that with other people. It's embarrassing, it hurts, it's heartbreaking at times. But frankly, if it's a non-Christian that's doing that to you, it's hard. Don't get me wrong, it's hard. But you know, the Bible says they hated him. They're going to hate us too, right? And so we can kind of go, yeah, I expect that from the non Christian world. The time that's the misunderstandings that are the hardest for us to swallow are when it happens with women who are sitting across this room right now. The misunderstandings and miscommunications that happen in your relationships here, those are the toughest ones. To deal with. And hopefully, in most cases, they are the benign kind, though. Hopefully, they're the kind that show up in church bulletins all across the country every week. Those benign bulletin bloopers, which we, of course, never deal with because we have the best admins on the planet. So Compass Bible Church never has anything like this in their bulletin. But here are a few of those benign kinds of funny misunderstandings you could have, kind of like where rooms are for meeting today. Here are a few that have ended up in bloopers, in bulletin bloopers. Potluck dinner Sunday at 5, prayer and medication to follow. Or how about, for those of you who have children and don't know it, we have a nursery downstairs. Here's a good one. Our high school basketball team is back in action on Wednesday. Come out and watch us kill Christ the King. Think about that for a minute. Or how about this one? Next Thursday, there will be tryouts for the choir. They need all the help they can get. (laughs) Right? Hopefully, our misunderstandings land in that category, in that bucket, and we can quickly and easily forgive and forget them. Right? But there are some misunderstandings that happen in our relationships that are tougher than that. They take more time, more effort, more finesse, more prayer for us to make our way through it. But I am confident that most of the conflicts, most of the misunderstandings we have in this room even, are because people don't have the right information about us. You know, it's it's not vindictive, it's just they, they didn't get the right piece of the puzzle. They made an honest mistake. They aren't themselves that day. They didn't mean to harm anybody. And when that happens, we just need to do our best to let those things go. Just let them go. Those kinds of things happen. God is good. He can help us deal with it and move forward. No big deal, right? I mean, these kinds of misunderstandings happen all over. They happen all over our Bibles. These misunderstandings happen to David. They happen to Paul. They happen to Jesus. They happen to Mary and Martha who were sisters and friends of Jesus. I mean, if you couldn't label their problem misunderstanding, I I don't know what it could. We shouldn't be surprised when these things happen and when our you know, relationships something goes awry. I mean, if, if, if it wasn't expected, why would the Holy Spirit include things like Yodi and Syntyche in our Bibles? Two names you only know because they had a, some kind of problem in Philippi. Or why would the Holy Spirit include Paul and Barnabas having that split and going two different ways on their missionary journey? if this kind of thing isn't going to happen, even in the church? Why would Paul teach the Philippians that they should be of the same mind, have the same love, and live in one accord, if we aren't supposed to expect that sometimes these things are just going to happen? We should not be surprised by them. There will be times when our peace will be interrupted. Don't let it derail you. Don't let it take you down. Don't let it, um, a miscommunication, a simple miscommunication, Make you lose your effectiveness. Make you melt into a puddle on the ground. Make you cash in your holiness for that day or that hour. Don't let it happen. Don't be surprised. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. But there's one more thing I think we need to talk about when we talk about expected misunderstandings, and that is that we need to try to never be the one through whom it comes. You know? We need to be so careful in our communication with one another. And we need to do what I like to call, give your sisters the benefit of the doubt. Just give them the benefit of the doubt. Our default mode cannot be, wow, she's so rude. I knew she would do that. That's always how she is, right? We can't jump to conclusions. Just because that's what the world does, we can't do that. We can't say how rude. We can't accuse someone of doing it on purpose. Or any other ridiculous thing we might have in our mind at that unguarded moment. Because all of us, every single one of us here, we all get distracted, right? We all are tired sometimes. And in that state, sometimes we make mistakes. We all are hormonal at times, or we're too busy, or we didn't sleep very well, or we're sad because, you know, my mom's dealing with this, or my financial situation is this, or that person said something harsh to me, or I waited too long to, you know, buy my Christmas presents and I'm in a line, right? We, we all have those situations. We all have times when we're not at our best, right? So. We need to be careful in our interactions with each other. Because in, in, in most cases, I think one of the greatest gifts that we can give to one another is to put our suspicions and our accusations behind us when it comes to one another. And we need to just think well of each other. There's a whole chapter in the New Testament that's all about this unconditional love. 1 Corinthians 13, right? And in verse seven, among other things, it says that this unconditional love that we should have for our sisters believes all things and hopes all things. That's thinking well of them. Thinking the best of them instead of the worst. Believing the good about them instead of the bad. We could save ourselves so much heartache in our relationships, in our small groups, and in this room if we could just do that one simple thing. Think the best of people and not the worst. Don't be the naysayer, the Debbie Downer, the critic in your friend group, the one who's always looking at the glass half empty. We all joke about it, ha ha ha, she's the one. That's not something that we should be thinking is funny. Something we should be fighting. Don't be that person. Be the person that prays for everybody, that encourages everybody, that sees things, you know, hopefully that looks at the bright side and tries to help everybody else do that and thinks the best of people. If we want to avoid misunderstandings, we need to be positive. Yes, they're expected. Yes, they're going to come. But try not to let them come through you. So we expect it and we do everything we can to avoid it. And I wish that's all we had to do with misunderstandings. I wish every single one was water under the bridge, but we know that's just not the case. And it's not the case in our passage either. Sometimes we're going to be compelled to tackle them head on, which is what these guys are going to have to do. Let's move on to verse 6. Verse 6 continues. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, or basically when they realized they had been foolishly provoking a very powerful nation, they went out and they hired a whole bunch of mercenaries or soldiers from up north. It says that they hired 20,000 foot soldiers from one nation and 13,000 from a couple others. They realized they had accidentally declared war on Israel and uh, that they were gonna need some help. First Chronicles 19 is the parallel passage that gives us another view of this. If you never went there, it tells the same story, gives you a few more details. One of the things it tells us is they spent 1,000 talents which is 75,000 pounds of silver. went a whole lot of money to hire these guys to help them, but it was their only hope for survival. Verse 7 says, When David heard of it, he sent Joab. Joab is the commander of his army. He's a military genius in his own right, and he took all of the host of the mighty men. That means he takes a whole bunch of soldiers with him. Verse 8 says, And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle, array, or they lined up in rows, At the entrance of the gate, the gate was of the capital city, Rabbah, which is about 50 miles from Jerusalem in what is now known as Ammon, Jordan. That's where this place is. The Ammonites gathered there to fight just outside the city. And the Arameans and the Syrians, who were the guys they hired from up north, they came, but they settled out in a big open field. And they also lined up in battle. Verse 9 says, when Joab saw that the battle was set against him both on the front and in the rear, or now they were surrounded. The guys from the north are above them. The guys, the Ammonites are below them. They're surrounded on all sides. He says, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. And Job said, Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may Yahweh do what seems good to him. So, Job and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. And Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. Wow, this is quite an escalation from a little misunderstanding. Okay, it was a pretty big misunderstanding. But it's quite an escalation. They actually literally have come to blows. Now, hopefully, that is not what happens in your miscommunication. No one comes to blows. But these guys are still going to have a lot of things to teach us, even though we're not going to hopefully get to that point. There's going to be a lot of things to teach us about how to deal with these conflicts in in our relationships. So when you're up to your eyeballs in miscommunication, you need to, point number two, be shrewd in resolving conflicts. That's where we're going next. Be shrewd in resolving conflicts. The Ammonites did wrong. Remember I told you, they poked them in the eye. They realized how badly they offended God's people and they needed help and that this problem was going to no longer be stuffed under the rug. David and Joab were going to get up and try to fix it. The same thing would happen in our world stage today if anybody dared to do what these men had done. We would call it an international incident and there would be ramifications of it. So the Ammonites hired these soldiers to fight. Well, Joab and David found out about it and they planned accordingly. They looked at what was happening and and decided to make some plans. That's gonna lead us to the first way that we can start to resolve our conflicts and there are going to be five of them, A, B, C, D, E. And they are not on a slide, A, B, C, D, E. Okay, ready? The first one, A, is what Joab did when he saw what was happening, he gathered intel. You need to gather intel. When you're in a conflict, when you have had a misunderstanding, when something's wrong, you need to gather some intel. You need to figure out what is happening here. That's letter A, gather some intel. Joab did not jump into the fray without figuring out what was happening, without taking stock of what was going on around him. He didn't do it until he knew what he was up against. We too cannot go in guns blazing. We're gonna have to do some homework. We're gonna have to figure out what's going on and why everybody's so tense and upset, okay? Do some homework. Don't jump to conclusions. Find out what's happening and why that person's tweaked. Gather some intel, okay? In 2 Samuel, Joabian uses that information in verse nine and 10 to letter B, strategize wisely strategize wisely. After he finds out what's happening, he's going to make a plan. He's going to strategize wisely. Joab does not panic as he sees all these troops pouring into his area. He doesn't panic. He comes up with, after thinking it through, a solid plan of attack. We see it in our passage. He saw that he was surrounded. He was basically trapped. Okay, So he says, I'm gonna take the strongest guys, the strongest soldiers of Israel, the special forces units, if you will, the Green Berets, the Navy SEALs, the Delta Force guys. He says, I'm gonna take them and I'm gonna put them under my own command. I'm the military genius here, I'm the guy in charge, I'm gonna take the special forces unit. And you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna face the biggest threat. In this case, it was the guys from the north. Then I'm gonna grab my brother, Abishai, and I'm gonna have him take everybody else and they're going to meet the Ammonites, who are our next-door neighbors. And they're at that capital city, and he's going to go attack that side. We're surrounded. I'll take the top. They're the biggest threat. You take the bottom. We're going to deal with this together. Okay? So we learn after we gather information, we need to take a moment, one, two, maybe 20, to make a plan ourselves of how we're going to deal with this. Frankly, there are times when the right plan for us to do is to confront the problem and talk to the person, and sometimes the right plan for us to do is nothing at all. But we figure that out when we're strategizing, wisely, which was an important word to put there. We have to figure out how to tackle the problem. It might take some time, some sleep, some thought, a good meal, maybe some wise counsel to figure it out. But. We need to make the most God-honoring decision and restore our peace. So we're going to have to strategize wisely. Then in verse 11, Joab does something that I think is super important. He says to his brother, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. And that's the third step when we're resolving conflicts. The third step is to enlist help. Enlist help. This is one of the most critical steps of all. And it does not mean that I'm giving you permission to go out there and share all the gory details of your misunderstanding with every person that passes you by because that would be gossip and that would be wrong. And I would never tell you to do that. But you do need a trusted godly friend or accountability partner that can help you navigate through it and that can also be there to support you when you're about, you know, you're weak or you're going to fall to temptation or you're going to, you know, do something wrong. You need that person. And that's what Joab had. Remember, he grabbed his brother, Abishai. You know, his brother was not, you know, a carpenter or a perfume maker. His brother was a soldier. He had qualifications which made him the right guy for that job. Your person needs to have qualifications to be the right person in your life to give you that kind of support. Joab said, hey, if the battle's too tough for me, I'm going to get you. If it's too tough for you, you come get me. Okay? Then in verse 12, we see Joab continue with this little heart-to-heart he's having, which I I love this speech. Don't you love this speech? I don't know if you sat on this speech, but hopefully you're thinking about it now. This speech is so great. He has this heart-to-heart. He says, be of good courage. Let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may Yahweh do what seems good to him. From this, we're going to get our next step, letter D, keep the big picture in mind. Keep the big picture in mind. You see, Joab realized that he was not fighting a simple little battle, just him and those guys on that field that day. He realized what was at stake. He realized that he was fighting for the people of Israel. He was fighting for their families, for their wives, for their children. He was fighting for the nation. He was fighting for those cities. He was fighting for their future as they lived among the pagan nations that surrounded them. There was a lot at stake here. We need to keep that in mind in our conflicts too. We're not fighting in a vacuum. There are people that are always watching us, and there are people that are always influenced by our decisions, even in our conflicts. So even if God should lead you to tackle your misunderstanding head-on with some kind of confrontation, ladies, we have to do it well. People are watching us. I don't care what you've suffered. I don't care how cruelly they have wronged you. We don't ever have the right to pay people back, or to be intentionally evil and vindictive to them. Now, our our skirmishes seem like they're all about us, but if you're a kid of the king, there is so much more at stake, so much more at stake. There are all kinds of sets of eyeballs watching you, both non-Christian and Christian. You've said you love God. Well, at least I hope you've said you love God. I hope that everybody in your sphere of influence knows that you love God. And uh, because of that, they're looking at you even more closely. They want to see what does a person who says they love God do when they're down on the mat? How do they act? I had a situation just this month, actually just a couple weeks ago, I barely started this and someone came up to me and said, you don't know me, you've never met me before, but I just want to tell you, I saw something, I saw you in a situation a decade ago. <laughs> and she's like, I saw you and I saw this situation and this unfair Thing that was happening, and I watched you and your family and how you dealt with it, and I just want to tell you that that made such an impression on me, and my life has never been the same. I'm like, well, first of all, I was like, and then I was like, wow, I am shaking in my boots. That scares me that someone I've never met who doesn't even live here, who lives far away from here, was watching me over a decade ago, and, you know, I just... God brought that back as I was thinking this through, thinking, this matters, ladies. People are watching you, and they don't forget what you do. They need solid role models. We all need solid role models, but the people that are watching our lives need solid role models. Even if we don't know their names, we have to live for Christ and honor Him in our conflicts, and we need to make it out the other side with humility and grace because they're watching us, not just because we want to please the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that we're always going to do it perfectly. I'm sure I didn't do it perfectly a decade ago when she was watching me. In fact, I know I didn't do it a decade ago, uh, perfectly a decade ago. But we got to at least try, at least try to do it well and do the best we can. We don't ever want to be the one who confronts something, especially in a conflict, and leaves a mark on someone. That shouldn't be there. We don't wanna be the one who's responsible for giving Jesus a black eye in the community because people were watching us and we handled it poorly. Well, the reminder again is that sometimes we have misunderstandings and we are supposed to go talk through it, but sometimes we have conflicts where we're supposed to let it go, even really tough ones. And I can tell you, I have seen my husband do this a hundred times in the last 30-plus years we've been doing ministry, where people have misunderstood his actions, his words, or his motive, and they twisted it all around. But he decided in that moment, it's only going to further inflame the situation if I go any farther. It doesn't matter. There is no good that is going to come from this. And it reminds me of something Peter said in 1 Peter Two twenty to 23, it's an awesome passage. 1 Peter 20 to 23, Peter speaks of it and he uses Jesus as our example. He says, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure it? But if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We can do that. We can follow our example of Jesus Christ, even in our conflicts. Well, David and company, they actually got to go fight the battle, right? Sometimes I said, we won't, you know, go to that point. Because sometimes for us, the best thing for us to do is kill that person with kindness. Woo them. Forgive them. And reaffirm our love for them. But if we are called to actually go over and you know, write that text, make that call, go meet with that person face-to-face, we better do it well. We better be a good representative of Jesus Christ there. We better be someone who communicates with gentleness, with kindness, with grace. And we should have verses burned into our minds, verses like Proverbs 15.1 that says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word, it just stirs up anger. Or Proverbs twelve, eighteen, which says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. If you're going to confront, it needs to be that way. Okay? Well, in God's wisdom, in verse thirteen and fourteen, Joab went out and he actually faced the enemy. They had gathered around him on each side, and that's when he got to our step. The fifth one, letter E, act decisively. Joab had to actually, you know, put his boots on that day and walk out and face the enemy. He had to act decisively. He had the information. He had formulated a plan. He had gotten help. He had the bigger picture. It was time to act. It was time to resolve this thing. And uh, I love how he faithfully laid down all that groundwork, but then he just as enthusiastically goes out and actually finishes the job does what needs to be done. He's thoughtful, he's careful, but then he's also faithful to finish it. When it's time to pull the trigger, he does it. And he's not afraid, he acts decisively. And he also spurs other people to do that around him. Verse 12, let's look back at it again. Verse 12, he says to them, those that are around him, be of good courage. Let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. He's not saying to them, be strong because you are strong. He's willing them. He's almost wishing them to be strong. He's spurring them on, saying like, you can do this, that kind of thing, that little kind of pep talk shot in the arm. He's gathering these people around him, and he's helping them to act decisively as well. Well, then he walked out on the battlefield. And in this situation, he won the battle without a single shot being fired, which is kind of cool. The big scary guys from up north, they ran away. And when the Ammonites saw them run away, they went in and they took their ball and they ran home. And they basically shut the door behind them, or in their case, it was the city gates they shut behind them. And uh, of course, that's the best scenario of all because they didn't really have to fight. They just you know, stood and stared at each other and then ran away. Of course, that's what we would love to do too. Just, whoop, okay, we're out of here. That would be awesome, right? Well, I think it's interesting to note too that Joab didn't go burn the gates down. He didn't go um, starve them out. Not at this point in time. He did what God planned for him to do, which was leave him alone and walk away. And I think that's interesting. He put the battle on hold for another day, which is going to be in our chapter. So, I mean, I know we think it was just, boom, a minute later. But, you know, they all went away, and then the rest of the chapter is going to happen. There is a little time. He puts it on hold till another day, and then he actually was, is going to come back to Rabbah next week, or not next week. It will be January before we get to it. In chapter 11, he's going to come back to this capital city and deal with this and finish it for good. But for this time, he doesn't, because it's not God's plan that day. He sits on his hands, but he has gathered intel, strategized wisely, enlisted help, got the bigger picture, and acted decisively. He's done all that God wanted him to do. But there is one more thing that he did, and to me, it's like the most important thing, and I just had to make it a whole point all by itself. So, Joab's going to do it really well. And to sum it up, to give you a framework to put it on, when you're in misunderstanding, you need to point number three, you need to trust God for the resolution. You need to trust God for the resolution. And we're going to see Joab do just that. The stage is set for this back in verse 12 in a little tiny phrase that we blew past really fast. You may have noticed it and gone, hmm, what do I shouldn't say anything about that? Because I'm going to make it a whole point. Back in verse 12, the end of the verse, he says something really great. After encouraging his troops to be strong, to fight, to act decisively like he is, he says, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. God's going to show us what that is in these four verses at the very end of this chapter. He's going to reveal his plan to them, of course. And starting in verse 15, it says, but when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel... They gathered themselves together, or they hightailed it out of there. And the Syrians went up north, and they began to regroup. And they gathered an even bigger army to come back and fight Israel. That's what they did. In verse 17, it says, But when, David, when it was told to David, he gathered all of Israel together this time, and crossed the Jordan, and came to Helam." The Syrians had themselves against David and fought with him. And again, the Syrians fled before Israel. Again, they did it. But this time, David killed the Syrians, of the Syrians, the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Well, I guess not. (laughs) All right. I I mean, I guess guess you're not going to go defend them anymore because look what happens when you do—get your hand slapped. You know, David handed these guys their lunch, and uh, they agreed to become his servants from then on. God had won a stinging victory for the nation of Israel here, and He did it when David called in his whole army to fight them and command them himself. And this passage says that they killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen and fatally wounded their commander. And it all started with Joab, who did something that I think is very powerful here. You see, Joab fought like everything depended on him, but he trusted like everything depended on God. He fought like everything depended on him, but he trusted like everything depended on God. Joab was not afraid to get his hands dirty and go out in the battle. But he also trusted God because he knew that the battle was the Lord's. That was the reason why he was a worthy general to a godly king like King David. Boy, do we need people like that. People who are ready to walk through conflict but who are also ready to trust God in that conflict. But Joab did more than that because he encouraged his men to accept God's answer in all of it, too. He wanted them to fight. Of course he wanted them to fight. But he really wanted them to embrace whatever it was that God wanted them to have when all the dust settled. Which implies that victory was not always going to be the case. He was going to embrace it whether there was victory or not. I love how he didn't say, May we be victorious. No, he said in that little phrase, may God do what seems best to him. That's a completely different thing. It implies an embracing and an acceptance of God's plans, even if they're not ours. Joab wanted them to fight hard, but also trust hard. He wanted them to embrace whatever God had for them. And it reminds me of a little buzzword we have around here. Adipat. That's what he's saying. He's saying, Adipat, may God do what seems best to him. I'm going to embrace and accept anything, any place, any time. And Adipat isn't just about planting churches and changing zip codes and even taking ministry posts because others vacate them to go other places. You see, Adipat is about everything. Adipat is even about accepting things in our relationships and the conflicts that we have that don't feel good, but embracing and accepting God's will in it. It's about trusting God and giving our pain to Him to do with it whatever He wants to do and saying to Him, may the Lord do what seems best to Him and being content with that and not holding grudges or being mean or withholding that invitation because that person is just, ah, right? Anything, anything means letting this all go and forgiving this person. Anything, any place, any time. I will embrace whatever God asks, even if my feelings are on the line. And I think it's funny that it's this big tough soldier, you know, Joab. I don't know how you picture him, but he's the guy who says this right? He's the guy who's not going to just fight hard, but he's going to trust hard. It's kind of a warm moment to see some big military guy say something like that. Well, we need to get there too, ladies. And we need to work through this. Misunderstandings with our action steps, but also with a submissive, adipat heart, like Joab had. God may work this out today. He may work this out tomorrow. He may not work this out till eternity, But an adipat heart says, "Ah, that's okay with me. When it involves our feelings, it's going to be particularly difficult, right? David got his victory. His wrong was righted. Sometimes ours isn't. Sometimes ours is a long time later. Um, Sometimes we're just stuck with our hurt feelings and a guarantee that God will be with us and that God knows it and that God will not forsake us. And we are left there to pray things like, Jesus did in the garden, not my will but yours be done, God it's a good thing to pray. It's a good thing to pray even out loud so you can hear yourself say it. I mean, hopefully it doesn't take you a hundred times of saying that out loud. Hopefully you get there by 10, but say it out loud if you have to. But remind yourself, not my will, but yours be done, God. Uh, Things don't always work out as we plan them to be, and they don't work out for everybody in our Bible and church history or even in our community that way either. You know, David here had a good situation, right, where all of a sudden the The wrong is righted. But if you remember back to 1 Samuel, that was not the case for him. He spent week after week after week being the one who was misunderstood. And he was innocent. And God waited till days like this for him to be vindicated and for peace to be restored. The only way we're going to get here, ladies, is to develop a strong and intimate relationship with God in our own personal lives to continue to develop that strong personal relationship with God, where we can pour our lives out with God and be real to Him and pray to Him and be honest and intimate. And where we can take in and He can talk to us and He can tell us what He really wants through His word, through the pulpits in this place. That's how we're gonna get to the point where we're really at a pat when it comes to our hurt feelings, when we develop that intimate relationship with God. And that doesn't happen one quiet time. I know we, you know, beat that with a dead horse, or beat that like a dead horse, not with a dead horse. That would be really hard. Um, I don't know if I could do that. But um, we talk about it a lot, is all I'm saying. And that's great, and we need to have good quiet times. But you need to not have one good quiet time. You need to have 100 good quiet times, ladies. You need to take whatever you're learning in the Word of God and actually do it and become a person who does it every time. It reminds me what happens with our kids. Uh, My daughter celebrated her 16th birthday last week and I had that mom moment that many of us have had where you're looking at them and you say, wow, how did this happen, right? You ever had that moment? How did this happen? I'm sure I'll be saying at 20 and 30 and all those other times too, but how did this happen? Well, we know how it happened. It happened because she was given food, she had sleep every night, uh, time passed and God let her grow up and be mature, right? That's how it happened. We gave her the right input and we helped her with it. And now, amazingly enough, she's ready to face the world, almost, right? Because she grew up, she matured. And it didn't just happen because we did one grand gesture and we poured it all into her, one time. No, it happened because we did it a hundred times. Day after day after day after day after day, we gave her what she needed and she grew up. Same thing's true in our spiritual lives, ladies. Day after day after day after day, you need to be having an open heart and listening to the Word of God and pouring yourself out to Him. I promise you, you will grow if that's the way you look at the Word of God and your time with Him and you grow in that intimacy. Um, Over time, God's plans will become our plans. There's a verse in Psalm 37, which I think is so great for this. Psalm 37, 4, it says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, frequently we think of that as God being a big vending machine, but that's not the case. It's trying to say that God will instill you with his desires in your heart. His desires will become your desires as you delight yourself in the Lord. That's going to happen over time. He will start to implant them there. So we need to come to God. We need to have an open heart. We need to trust Him and take whatever action steps He wants us to take and wait patiently for our conflict to end when our peace is interrupted. Because, ladies, we don't ever want to be like uh, these American companies that I've heard of whose uh, messages get lost in translation. Um, They end up with slogans they did not plan. Slogans like the one for the Electrolux vacuum company, which now says nothing sucks like an Electrolux when it was translated into a new language. Or the Schweppes tonic water, which is now called toilet water in some cultures. Or KFC's finger looking good, which is now translated eat your fingers off. Or Coca-Cola where in Chinese, its slogan was supposed to say, happiness in the mouth, but because of one minuscule character flaw, their slogan is now, bite the wax tadpole, (laughs) right? It's a misunderstanding. It's a miscommunication. It is not what they intended, right? It is not what David and his men intended either when he went to visit the Ammonite, new king in the Ammonite world. Communication is not what I say, it's what you hear. And David and Job had a big problem to fix in this bizarre story, but hopefully they have taught us some things, that we need to expect misunderstandings, that we need to shrewdly resolve our conflicts, and we need to trust God for the final resolution of these things. My hope and prayer is that's what will happen to you the next time your peace is interrupted. Let's pray. Dear God, I just want to thank you, first of all, that we do not face any of these misunderstandings alone. Because we're your kids, you are with us. And uh, that will never not be the case for us. That is such a comfort. And Lord, I do thank you for the lessons that can be learned in our Bibles because they are living and active. And I'm sure that many of us, Read this this week, and even studied and did all the questions and scratched out, and thought, "This is weird. What What are we supposed to do with this?" God, I pray that um, we would just see how amazing Your Word is, and how it's such a gift as we open it, and 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 look at all the layers and the pieces, and see how Your Word applies to us. Thank you, Lord, for this story. Thank you, Lord, for the truths that we can find here. And I pray for our groups right now and the discussions that we will have. But I pray most of all that we will go out, we will take these things even to our Christmas dinner table. And we will handle the misunderstandings that happen even in that place with more grace and dignity as we think about the bigger picture, as we let it be water under the bridge, or as we choose this is the right thing to confront come the new year after we get through these holidays. Lord God, give us wisdom. We don't want to do this wrong. We want to be shining godly examples, ones that people can see Jesus Christ clearly through. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.